This is an ABC podcast. By his 40s, Ben Barris had built an impressive career. He was a neurobiologist at Stanford, the head of his own lab, and he'd made a breakthrough discovery. He discovered a lot about the functioning of the glia, which are particular kinds of brain cells. But that's not actually the story we're focusing on today. We're focusing on Ben's personal story. So Ben had been born Barbara. And at this point, in the mid-90s, he was still known to the world as a woman. He would soon undergo a transition, but he had a lot to worry about. He was extremely worried that the scientific establishment, the community, and his colleagues wouldn't accept him. He didn't know really what would happen. He didn't know if students would still want to join his lab or if he'd still get invited to conferences. So he had a lot of trepidation about undergoing this transition. But he went through with it. And he found, to his surprise, that the scientific community did react, but not in the way that he expected. What he found was that people who did not know that he had transitioned, who were just meeting him and being introduced to him as Ben for the first time, responded to him with more respect. They gave him the benefit of the doubt. He found that he was not interrupted in meetings anymore. And he was even at a scientific conference where another scientist was overheard saying, well, Ben does really good work. His work is so much better than his sister's. <sighs> wow. Not knowing that he was referring to actually the same person. And so this was really an eye-opener to Ben because he hadn't understood how deeply his gender was affecting the way people were treating him until the transition. This is All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar, and Ben's story is a telling portrait of how bias works, how it can fly under the radar, yet still have an impact. Because the way he'd been treated before, it wasn't like he was constantly facing overt sexism or harassment. You know, it was subtle, almost invisible, everyday, fleeting interactions mm -hmm. that because he didn't have anything to compare it to, he didn't, he didn't realize that this was being governed by his gender. And that's a workplace example, but we know that bias can affect the kind of healthcare a person receives, the kind of policing they're subjected to, and all kinds of other outcomes. But unconscious bias is notoriously difficult to address. And a lot of the strategies that we use, like workplace diversity training programs, for example, don't actually have all that much evidence to back them up. So today, can bias be busted? We look at evidence-based strategies for change and the strategies that simply lack evidence. At this point, most of us are pretty aware of what bias is, unconscious or otherwise, and some of the impact it has. Black and Latino patients are less likely to get pain medication from doctors than white patients who are expressing the same amount of distress. Women are more penalized for failure and less rewarded for success than men. If you are a white job applicant with a criminal record, uh, one study found you're more likely to get a callback than if you are a black job applicant with a criminal record and without a criminal record. You know, the list goes on. This is Jessica Nordell. She's a science writer and journalist and has spent much of her career writing on bias. You know, I had been covering bias and discrimination for many years, and I became impatient with journalism's 
focus on describing the problem. <laughs> Journalists, you know, we, we love exposing wrongdoing. We love talking about the problems and what's going wrong. And that's an essential function in any society. But what I became increasingly concerned about was the question of what do we actually do about it? And what are the approaches, if there are any, I really didn't know at the beginning of this project, what are the approaches that have been shown to change people's behavior in a measurable way? The result is her book, The End of Bias, A Beginning, The Science and Practice of Overcoming Unconscious Bias. And before we dive into solutions, perhaps we should begin with first understanding how biases form in our minds. Like, where do we learn this stuff and why do we run with it? The idea of unconscious bias is really that as we are growing up in a particular culture, we learn the categories that are salient in that culture, categories of race and ethnicity or age or religion or what have you. And as we're learning those categories, we are also learning stereotypes and beliefs and kind of cultural knowledge about those different categories. And all of that is stored in memory. It's not necessarily something that we choose, but it's something that filters into our minds just as a byproduct of living in a culture. Mm -hmm. And then when we encounter a person or a situation that maps onto one of those categories, all of those associations and all of that cultural knowledge is activated and it starts to play a role in our interactions. And so none of us are really immune from this, are we? Because we all live in a culture and Pretty much all cultures have weird ideas about outsiders, you know? So yeah, can we ever escape this kind of thinking? It's a good question. I think that we're all susceptible to expressing bias. You know, one thing that's interesting is that the biases are different. You know, if you move from culture to culture, the categories are different. The biases are different. Um, I mean, I had a really interesting experience when I was a teenager living in France briefly. I was a foreign exchange student. And in the process of going to high school, I became friendly with a group of French students. They were really nice. They were really interested in me. And we hung out at lunchtime and chatted. And later, I heard from the other French students and the French family that I was staying with that I had been hanging out with, quote unquote, Arabs. Hmm. And I didn't know anything about the category Arab because I had grown up in northeastern Wisconsin. That, that category was not salient to me at all. It wasn't relevant. Right. And I didn't even notice anything different about these students because I didn't know what to look for. The category didn't even exist in my mind. Hmm. And so after I learned this category and I started to learn what it meant in French culture, then it was like my vision, my perception, my orientation toward the world started to get tuned to the French sort of cosmology. Mm. And it was like I was learning a prejudice completely from scratch. Wow. And did it change how you sort of interacted with those students? It didn't change how I interacted with the students, but I suddenly started to see the way that those students were different in a way that was completely invisible to me before. So there's the matter of culture, but there's also the matter of our evolution. For a lot of human history, we've had to be suspicious of outsiders. Yeah, you know, I think there there certainly is an evolutionary component. You know, for most of human history, people had a very limited range of 
of people that they actually interacted with and probably had good reason to want to protect their kinship group. Mm. I also think, you know, we have an evolutionary reason to put things into categories and to make quick assumptions and judgments about those categories because we just from a cognitive perspective can't possibly process all of the bits of information that we get per day. So there definitely is sort of a evolutionary advantage to some of this. You know, the the problem is when this tendency starts to interfere with our deeply held values, like egalitarianism, equality, wanting to treat people with fairness, uh, wanting justice, you know, wanting to form trusting relationships with others. Mm-hmm. That's when I think we we start to see how these, you know, spontaneous reactions are not really serving us ultimately. Let's talk solutions then. And I want to cover solutions that have worked, of course, but also solutions that haven't because they're important too. First up is the implicit association test. This is the most widely known tool for measuring unconscious bias. It burst onto the scene in 1998, and over the years, it's had plenty of media coverage. It's also been the subject of a lot of debate in the field of psychology. So the IAT is this tool that kind of promises to ferret out implicit bias by testing how strongly certain social identities are linked with certain stereotypes in your mind. And basically, the way it works is you sit at a computer and you're presented with words. So for instance, if you take an implicit association test designed to assess anti-gay bias, you might be presented with a list of words like smiling or good or bad or gay. And you're asked word by word to decide whether to put the word into the category gay or bad or the category straight or good. These words appear rapid fire, so you have very little time to make a deliberate choice. You just have to kind of go with your gut. The test is available online for anyone to take. So if you see like the word smiling, you might say, okay, well, that's good. So it goes into the category straight or good. And then you're shown another list and you're asked to sort the words again, but this time the category is gay or good and the category straight or bad. So if you're faster at sorting words into gay or bad than you are at sorting words into gay or good, it basically suggests that the connection between gay and bad is stronger in your mind. Mm. So it's really meant to sort of ferret out how closely a particular identity is connected to a positive or negative like valence in your mind. And so why is it actually a bit problematic, this test? So there are a couple of really big problems with this test. You know, one is that if you take the test at, say, 9 a.m. and then you take the test at 3 p.m., you're not necessarily going to get the same score. And so hmm. it ha- it's low in what psychologists call test-retest reliability. Um, and you can imagine, like, if you, you know, if you're weighing yourself on a scale and it says one weight at one time of the day and a totally different weight at another time of the day, you might think, hmm, I'm not sure if this scale is that reliable. So that, that's one problem with it. You know, another big problem is that your score on the implicit association test does not very strongly predict your behavior. And so, you know, when this was developed, it first was sort of seen as like a holy grail, like, oh my gosh, you know, we've seen the, the foundation of bad behavior in the world, uh, you know, unconsciously biased behavior in the world, because we have this test that measures this thing. But what became clear over time was that 
the test isn't a very good predictor of how you'll behave. So you, there might be someone who whose score on the IAT would suggest they're very biased, but they might actually not behave in a very discriminatory way and vice versa. You know, and that's partially because our behavior is the product of so many different factors. It's not, you know, just sort of one kind of association in our mind that's causing us to behave in a certain way. It's our you know, alertness, our cognitive load, our motivation, our goals, you know, the specific person we're interacting with, all of these things play a role. So the IAT was a bit of a fizzer. Turns out workplace diversity training might also be. Definitely one of the sort of hot, you know, hot approaches to decreasing bias and improving workplace cultures and organizational cultures is diversity training. The problem with diversity training is that it is rarely evaluated. You know, if you could imagine like a medicine that is distributed to a vast number of people who are experiencing some kind of health problem and the medicine is distributed and then no one checks to see if it's actually helped their their health problem or not. Yeah. Diversity trainings are are a little bit like that right now. Right. You know, most companies have some kind of diversity training. Yeah. Um, but very few of them actually do the work of figuring out, well, what are the specific goals we're trying to achieve in terms of, you know, whether it's changing our culture or, you know, improving the retention of employees from certain backgrounds or or whatever it is. And then tracking to see whether the diversity training is actually useful. I mean, it could be making things better. It could be making things worse. It could be having no effect at all. We often just don't know because they're rarely um, looked at in that light. And so that's one of the challenges. In addition to the fact that sometimes mandatory trainings can cause backlash, there was an analysis of many years of corporate diversity programs done by a couple of sociologists who found that after mandatory diversity trainings, women of color in positions of management actually decreased. Oh, wow. There were fewer women of color in positions of management. So you, you have to be quite, I think, intentional and really treat these approaches and these interventions almost on the level of like a medical intervention where, hmm. where you really want to be quite sure that what you're doing is meeting the goals that you have. So if the evidence is mixed about their efficacy or, you know, not great overall, why have they become so common in workplaces? Oh, gosh. You know, I think they've become common because there are a lot of people offering them. They're fairly easy to implement. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you could bring in a consultant and have someone do a two-hour workshop, and then you're able to say that you've addressed, you know, you've addressed diversity issues. Uh, I don't mean to sound too cynical, but I think that there can be kind of a box-checking approach right. or reason. You know, and I think maybe a reason that gives companies more of the benefit of the doubt is that some of them really want to make a positive difference and they just don't know how. And this is kind of an immediately accessible approach that's really common. For Jessica, the workplace is actually where she first became aware of bias, when it affected her for the first time. Growing up, she says, it didn't really factor in her thinking. I was a kid racialized as white in a majority white town. I'm Jewish, but I was undetectably Jewish. People didn't really know I was Jewish unless I happened to tell them. And I didn't encounter a lot of gender bias because I was, you know, a really conscientious sort of straight A student. But what I found was when I started in my professional life, suddenly things looked a lot different. And 
in my own career as a journalist, I went through a period where I was trying to break into national magazines and newspapers and I wasn't getting anywhere. I was sending out queries and cold pitches, as I'm for sure you're familiar with, yes. you know, sort of reaching in, across the ether, yeah. in, hoping an editor will respond. And I wasn't, I wasn't getting any responses. And I had one particular moment when I was trying to place an essay that I'd written that had kind of a short window of relevance. And I knew that if I didn't place it soon, it would just die mm. and no one would ever see it. And so in kind of a moment of desperation, I created a new email address and I sent out the same pitch, but as JD Nordell instead of Jessica Nordell. Hmm. And I thought to myself, maybe if this shows up looking like it's coming from a man, maybe the response will be different. I've tried everything else. Why not try this? And the essay was accepted within a couple of hours. Wow. That's stark a difference. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I honestly couldn't believe it. I thought, I, what? This isn't, this didn't actually work, did it? <laughs> but it did. That's what really kicked off my interest. I couldn't believe that this editor was intentionally rejecting pitches from women, but I could believe that this editor was influenced somehow by, you know, some stereotypes that that this person had absorbed yeah. that affected the way that they reacted to pitches. And so I wrote stories as J.D. Nordell for a few years after that. You're back to Jessica Nordell now, though. I'm back to Jessica Nordell now. I couldn't really manage it because I would be corresponding with an editor as J.D. And then they called me on the phone. And then I said, hi, this is Jessica. And it was so confusing. It just right. didn't work. Yeah. So, yeah, I ultimately just reverted to, to being Jessica. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, busting bias. So it took changing her name for science writer Jessica Nordell to get noticed. But that's not exactly a solution for curbing bias. It's a band-aid at best. We've also covered how a lot of workplace diversity training programs often lack evidence. So what works? Well, the good news is there are some training programs that have actually been shown to change behaviour. One that's been extensively evaluated was developed by a woman named Patricia Devine. Patricia Devine is a pretty interesting person. She was one of the early psychologists who developed the idea that there could be stereotypes in the mind that are activated outside of conscious awareness. And some of her work more recently has had to do with developing interventions. So one of the interventions that has been shown to change people's behavior is a training her lab has developed called the habit-breaking training. And it basically looks at bias as a habit, as a habit that can be broken the way other habits can be broken. And so the approach that it uses is similar to cognitive behavior therapy. Hmm. So the training has a few different components. There's a component that's designed to build awareness. There's a component that's designed to increase your motivation to want to break this habit. And then there's a component that provides replacement strategies. So like, what are the other things you could be doing instead of this bad habit? Things like trying to think of situational reasons for a person's behavior instead of assuming it has to do with some inherent characteristic. 
And when they did evaluate it, they did a pretty rigorous randomized control trial. And so like in one case, they took a whole bunch of STEM departments at a university, departments that were pretty similar to one another, and they put them in pairs. And one of the departments got this training and the other one, I think, got no training or got, you know, some kind of control training about something else. And then they looked to see in the following couple of years, whether the training had had any kind of impact on their hiring practices. And when they did a gender bias focused version of this training and they did a randomized control trial, they found that the departments that had gotten the training did actually hire more women, wow. like in a statistically significant way in the coming years. And so that's you know one finding. They also did racial bias focused version of the training. And they found that a year later or more, students who had taken this training were more likely to speak up against racism when they encountered it in an online discussion. And so I think what's really promising about these trainings is it seems like they're actually having an effect that's lasting, you know, beyond the day of the training or, you know, the next day. The research suggests that there's something more long-term that's getting shifted, which is very hopeful. So that's a workplace training that's been evaluated. Then there's a training aimed at bias in the classroom, specifically reducing racial disparities in student discipline. This was developed by a psychologist at Berkeley named Dr. Jason Okanafua. Because we see a huge, at least in the United States, we see a really large disparity in the suspension and expulsion rates of African-American students compared to white students. And so what he did was he recruited a bunch of math teachers to participate in this program. They were told that they were there to review best practices in teaching. But what they were actually there to do was absorb and read and reflect on information about creating trusting relationships with students. So the whole intervention was really designed to increase what he refers to as empathic discipline, like disciplining students, but with empathy and trust and understanding. So the teachers read these short passages on trust and respect and why students need both of those. They were also given some of the same strategies that appear in Patricia Devine's training. Like they were told that it would be a good idea to avoid labeling students, to try to look at for situational reasons a student might be behaving in a certain way, and what the research showed was that after teachers went through this intervention, even though they didn't know that they were actually part of a research study, mm -hmm. over the following year, suspension rates dropped. And particularly, suspension rates of African-American and Latino students dropped from about 12% to about 6%. Wow. This was in the last couple of years. And I think he actually just did a replication recently on a much wider scale. But I think, you know, one thing that's really interesting about this approach is that it's not actually targeting bias. It's actually trying to amplify and elevate the values that are important that we actually want teachers to adhere to when they're interacting with students, things like respect and trust and understanding and empathy. And so it's an interesting intervention because it's not actually telling teachers to decrease their bias. Mm. It's actually just helping them develop and really nurture these other values that can override those biases. Yeah. So it sounds like solutions that do work are, you know, they take effort, they're complex, but, you know, they can actually work in the end. Absolutely. I mean, I really undertook this project because I was trying to 
find out whether it's possible to actually change these like deeply rooted habits and behaviors. And what I found was that, yes, there are approaches that actually change people's behavior for the better. They do take work. They take a kind of work ethic, if you will. They take commitment. They have been shown to change people's behavior. So it's more in line with values. After having done all this research for the book, are there any aspects of bias that you think remain unexamined or underexamined? Absolutely. I mean, if you look at the research on bias, the, the majority of the research focuses on race, ethnicity, and gender. And there are so many additional kinds of bias that we do not have enough research about. I'm thinking about particularly indigenous people. Mm. When I was looking for research about bias against Native Americans in the United States, almost all of the research focuses very narrowly on the issue of college university mascots and the controversy around them. And there's a lot more, obviously, to the story. And so that's an area that I think is totally under-researched ageism and approaches to combating ageism, bias against people with disabilities. All of these areas, I think, require a lot more research and a lot more understanding. And given that we have had a few decades of, you know, talk about bias, we're more aware of it now. Do you think things have actually changed or are we just as biased as ever, but aware? Mm. Good question. You know, if you look at, we were talking about the IAT earlier and its limitations, and there are serious limitations. But one thing that I think it's really useful for is looking at the biases of a culture. Like if we look sort of cumulatively across an entire culture, across millions of these tests, we can get a little bit of a sense of the contours of a particular culture's stereotypes. Mm -hmm. And there was recently a review of the way that implicit associations have changed over time. Oh, yeah. And some of them have stayed the same, but some of them have decreased, particularly bias against people who are gay and lesbian has decreased if you look at broadly cultural trends in implicit association tests. So I think, you know, some biases have decreased, some are sticky. And regardless, there's a lot of work for us all to do. And um, did any of your ideas about bias uh, get challenged or changed over the course of writing the book? Hmm. You know, I think I started this process thinking I was probably a little bit less biased than other people, Hmm. which I think is actually true for most of us. I think most of us think we're maybe we're biased, but we're probably a little bit less biased than everyone else. Yeah, sure. And I very humbly came to the realization that that was not true and that I, how do I want to put this? I found that it was actually only through making mistakes and screwing up Hmm. that I was able to see my own biases and then able to actually take a hard look at them and address them. And that happened many, many times over the course of working on this project. Like I would say something or do something and then be someone who would say, hey, Jessica, you know, did you realize like that you were saying this, but that wasn't really right? Or, you know, they would sort of like point it out to me and then I would go through a process. I think that many of us also have gone through, which is feeling defensive, feeling a little angry and ultimately seeing that this was an opportunity to actually grow. And so it was 
an ongoing process of learning and growing and changing. What I believe, what I've come to see and what I truly believe is that while it is a lot of work and it takes a lot of humility and ability to manage one's own defensiveness, the rewards are really great because when we tackle our own biases, we open the possibility of having an authentic relationship with another person. Hmm. And that to me is such a huge reward, you know, being trusted and being in a trusting relationship with another person, particularly someone who is, you know, has some kind of difference. You know, we exist across some kind of social difference from one another. It makes the work so worthwhile and so just life-giving, ultimately. That's Jessica Nordell, science journalist and author of The End of Bias, A Beginning. And just before we go, we kicked off the show talking about neurobiologist Ben Barris and his experience of bias as a trans man. Ben passed away in 2017, but his legacy is huge. Oh my gosh, he is like a towering figure. He became a huge advocate for all underrepresented groups in science, and he constantly was pushing academia to evolve. That's it for All in the Mind this week. Thanks to producer Bell Smith and sound engineer Russell Stapleton. I'm Sana Kadar. I'll catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.